Quick note before we get started, I am using some new recording equipment and I'm still getting the hang of it. And I noticed once I started editing this episode that there were a couple times where the recording actually dropped out for a few seconds at a time. And so in some sentences, you'll just hear a few words drop out. And I just wanted to let you know that I am aware of that. I didn't notice it until after I had already recorded the episode. And I think I know how to get that fixed for next time. But I just want to let you know that we will get it taken care of. So thank you so much. Let's start the show. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back to another episode. So glad to have you back. I apologize that it's been such a long time. I've just had a lot going on and have not been able to sit down and cast. So I want to give you just a quick couple of notes to fill in on what's been going on with me, what's been going on with the show since the last episode. I think it's been like a month and a half or something like that. Again, I apologize, but Uh, It's just been a crazy several weeks for me personally, and some great things are happening with the show, some great things are happening in my personal life, and so just really quickly, I do want to let you know kind of why I've been out for so long, and also kind of what's going on with the podcast, because we do have some pretty cool things going on. So, first of all, in my personal life, I had told you at the first episode of this year that there was something going on with me, and I wasn't quite sure what it was, but that I needed to try to get some help to help myself work through those things to make it easier to record this podcast because there were things that were just making it difficult for me to make the time to sit down and just record that I had all kinds of thoughts that I wanted to share with you but the act of actually recording was difficult and I've got a little bit of insight into what's going on there got a little bit of a diagnosis and I'm working with some people to try to get that worked out and I hope that someday I might be able to share more of that with you and hopefully you know if any of you kind of deal with some of the same things then I can hopefully be of help in that sense. But my general rule of thumb is that you don't take advice from anybody who is not currently where you want to be in that area. And so just going off of that rule for me, I am in no position to be giving anybody any kind of advice whatsoever. But I'm hoping to just destroy this thing and get through it and be better because of it and be able to share that with you and uh, hopefully be able to help anybody else out there who's dealing with some of the same things. Also, uh, making some big moves in my personal life, uh, switching jobs. My old job has really been causing me a lot of issues, and so that's been kind of difficult. And so got a change coming up there that will hopefully make things a little bit easier on me and the podcast. And uh, also making some financial moves that I honestly never thought that I would be able to make. And I'm not making seven figures or anything like that, but it does feel good to be moving in the right direction and to do something that I thought that I would never be able to do. So those kind of things for me personally, just wanted to share with you, let you know that I'm doing well, just working through a few things that have held me up because I'm just have to uh, make my priorities. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes the podcast cannot be one of those. Uh, The other things that you've missed with the podcast since we've been gone, uh, apparently we're doing something right. Uh, I got word that our episode that was called Storming the Capital, was it activism or aggression? That was actually removed from YouTube and YouTube took that off of there, gave me a strike against my account because uh, you're not allowed to question the election or anything like that on YouTube. And uh, I really didn't. I mean, I even said on that episode that 
that you can ask whether or not this election was legitimate, but I honestly think that it, it probably was. I honestly think that the corporate interests and that the corporations buying into this election and, and really trying to push people the way that they wanted them to vote, I think was a lot more influential than any kind of possible vote tampering or anything like that could have been. But, you know, we should at least be allowed to ask these questions and probably just mentioning this on this podcast is going to get this episode kicked off of YouTube, too. But uh, someone is taking notice and someone is taking those things off there. I've also had some links removed from Facebook. I tried to post a link several times to my interview with Craig from the Unbeaten Path podcast. We had a great interview there. We talked for about two hours, had a blast. We talked about racism. We talked about police. We talked about the military. We talked about how all of these things kind of push me toward the positions that I have and how they differ a little bit from Craig. And he was a great host. And I really, really loved being on the show with him. And I tried to share that episode several places and it kept getting taken down, especially by Facebook. Facebook kept pulling it down over and over again. And Apple also removed a ton of my reviews. I had plenty of reviews up there and now it's been knocked back down to like 25 or something like that. Kind of crazy. I don't know what the deal is, But it does tell me that this podcast is moving in the right direction because someone is taking notice, whether it be the algorithms or whether it be my personal NSA agent or whatever it is, whoever's listening, thank you. And uh, whoever's passing this around and sharing it, thank you so much, because it does tell us that we are truly your cure for the mainstream media, that this goes against a lot of the things that go for the corporate narrative and the kind of things that they want to push and the kind of ways that they want to push you. And instead we talk about these things and the way they work in reality. And this episode is not going to be any different. So the last episode, we left off talking about how the Federal Reserve creates money and they insert it into the stock market to make the stock market look better. That ultimately means that there is more money for the rich and more inflation for people like you and me, making the little bit of money that we do have worth even less. And this is a gap between the rich and the middle class and the poor And this isn't directly the fault of the rich, but instead these rich people are just protecting what they have, just like you and I try to protect what we have. But when they pump that money into the stock market, it makes the stocks go up. Obviously, more rich people tend to own more stocks and those kind of things. So their money is going to grow exponentially faster than what we have, causing that bigger wealth gap. So what I want to do is I want to take a little bit deeper dive into some of these concepts and... I've alluded to a lot of these things on previous episodes of the podcast, so you longtime listeners will probably have heard some of this before, but I want to put it all together in one place that's really easy to understand to get all of this. And my goal with this podcast since the beginning has always been, I want this to be the show that you send to your friends to help them understand why we believe the things that we believe. So my goal here is not to give you some doctorate level economics course, but instead Sticking with the theme of the show, I just want you to be able to see past the simple good guy, bad guy, you're too dumb to understand this, so we'll just tell you what to believe narrative that the corporate media is always trying to give you. And another thing I want to point out here is that once I had a progressive friend who accused me of using conservative economics, and I want to be really clear here that economics is a science. It it isn't necessarily agenda-driven or policy-driven or anything like that in the same way that any other science at its core, it's not agenda-driven either. Um, Science asks questions like, what is gravity or what is a virus? And then you study those things to understand them and you hopefully can find ways to build airplanes to defy gravity or develop medicines to fight viruses. The goal is to act and find out how we can work with them or work around them or embrace them or avoid them if we need to. And there may be different ways of looking at these things. You may be able to take different angles when it comes to these. You know, was the universe created by God or was it created by the Big Bang? 
Um, is there intelligent life on other planets? Can man really go to the moon? And it's, it's okay for us to have disagreements about these things. We may have different beliefs or different angles that we want to take these things on at. But ultimately, the goal of science, the, the goal of good science, is to ask why and how these things happen, and hopefully, when we understand how and why they happen, then we're better prepared to live and understand the world around us. So, you can hate gravity if you want to. It, it gets in the way sometimes. I would love to be able to fly when you see birds just take off like that. I mean, it's amazing. Or think of the time that we could save if we could just fly wherever we wanted to go. But unfortunately, gravity is something that we have to live with. And if you just walk up to the top of your roof and you want to protest gravity and you decide to jump off because you don't believe that it's fair, things are not going to end well for you. That is not going to work out. However, Perhaps if we find a way to build an airplane or you find a way to buy a jetpack or whatever these kind of things can be, we can find ways to work around them. We can find ways to take advantage of airflow and of, of rocket thrust and all these different things to get around it. But the reality is gravity is real and we have to accept that before we can move toward other solutions to getting around it sometimes. And it's going to be the same way with economics. We may have different beliefs. We may have different points of view. We may even want different policy. All I'm trying to do here is to lay out some basic ways of understanding the boom-bust cycle and trying to explain why, why we as, as Austrian economists, why we believe that it keeps happening over and over again. So even if you like the Federal Reserve, even if you want universal health care, you want universal basic income, you want rent control, you want strong regulations in the economy, all of that stuff is fine. Those are points of view that you can hold. All I'm saying here is that when you do these types of things, because of the laws of economics, because of the laws of scarcity, you are going to cause other certain side effects to happen because you tried to make one of those things fit into the box that you wanted to fit into. And in the same way, scientific theories present a proposed solution to why some of these things happen the way they do. So today we are about the Austrian business cycle theory and it's relatively simple, and it's one of those things that you can you can start with it, and once you understand it, you're able to understand a lot of other things better because of it. So it's something very simple at its core, um, but very quickly can kind of snowball into a million other things because you see how it affects all these things around you. So obviously, as the name suggests, this comes from the Austrian School of Economics, and the way that I understand it, the Austrians are the only ones who have consistently been predicting these economic crashes that we seem to be experiencing every decade or so for the past century. The Austrians are the only ones who are predicting it. And also one other quick note, when we're talking about Austrian economists, and you're not necessarily talking about people from Austria, but just people from the Austrian school, people who believe in free markets and who study things in that light a little bit. But like I said, the Austrians are the only ones who are predicting these boom bust cycles. Everybody else seems to act shocked when these things happen. And then they're all scrambling around to try to find something to blame for what could have caused this and whose fault it is. And they typically point to like the last regulation that was recently repealed, or they pick some sector of investors or some rich people or somebody else to blame. But they're going to be scrambling around because they're going to say, nobody could have seen this coming. How could this happen? But the Austrians are the only ones who not only have a consistent reason for why the last crash happened, but they're also the ones who are already telling you why the next big crash is coming. And that's why we hold to the Austrian business cycle theory in this show. We believe that that theory is showing itself over and over and over again. We believe that this thing is, is right. So 
as you've heard me say before, I believe, as do lots of us who believe in free markets, that we are way overdue for the next large crash in the U.S. economy. And again, it's been kind of a, a down couple of weeks in the markets, so maybe that crash is starting now, maybe not. A lot of times we don't even realize that we're in a recession this early, and then when we look back, we realize that we're six months into it. So it's possible we're already in it, may not be there yet, we'll see. So it is probably too soon to tell if this is it, but when it happens, and I did say when and not if, the media, they're going to give you all kinds of reasons why this happened and whose fault it is and who you're supposed to be mad at. And all of that, most of it, if not all of it, will be completely wrong. So I'm hoping to get to you ahead of all of that so you can understand what is happening before it happens and you'll already have a good grasp on all this while your friends are running to Rachel Maddow to tell them what to think. So we mentioned some of this on the podcast before, but it's important now that we cover this all in one place. So let's start with banks. Even in a completely free market, we would still have banks. Banks offer a safe place to store money. And if you belong to a banking chain or the banks are connected in some other way, you're able to withdraw and transfer your money all over the country. And that offers plenty of safety and convenience for you, the customer. You know, If you're going on a long trip and you don't want to carry all of your money with you, it's great to know that if you're a customer of Chase Bank, you can go to another Chase Bank, another state over, and have no problem taking that money out because they are connected to one another and they know you're good for it. Um, banks also make most of their money by lending money out. They take some of their customers' money that's being held at the bank and they loan that money out to other people. The people borrowing the money are expected to pay their loans back with interest. And most of that interest goes back to the bank as profit. And as you know, they, they give a little bit of interest back to the people who are saving to hopefully encourage them to save a little bit more money and keep it at the bank and the bank's able to use it that way. Now, the bank is also taking a fair amount of risk when it loans out its customers' money. If the borrower doesn't pay back the loan, then the bank is on the hook for that money because you got to remember, they borrowed that money from one of their customers who left their money at the bank for safekeeping. So, the bank has to make sure that they only loan out the money to people who they're fairly certain will be able to pay it back. And again, the bank's also going to give a small amount of interest to people who are saving their money there to hopefully encourage people to keep their money at the bank rather than sitting at home in a shoebox or bury it in the backyard or whatever. Now, if the bank sees that too many people are borrowing money and not enough people are saving money, then they're going to start to worry that they're going to run out of money to loan out. So what the bank can do is they can raise the interest rates on loans, which makes it more expensive to borrow money, and that's going to discourage a lot of people from borrowing money. And they can also raise the interest rates on savings, which will encourage people to put money in the bank so that their savings accounts can grow more as well. So what that does is it just kind of changes the balance of things. Just a little bit more people are going to save, less people are going to borrow. That helps them build up a bigger storage of money in their bank so that hopefully they can loan out more money a little bit later and start making more money again by lending out all that money. Then, finally, when the bank feels like their funds are a little bit more balanced, they can lower both the savings and loan interests back down so they're not paying people as much to save money and they'll also encourage more people to borrow, which of course is going to be the bank's main source of income. They can move these rates up and down as often as needed and as much or as little as needed. They can, they can bump it up anytime they want to. And uh, again, they can also change those things for certain amounts of people. If you want to keep more money in the bank, maybe they're going to give you a little bit more interest on that than if you're only going to keep a little bit of money. And in the same way, 
maybe if you are a more risky borrower, your credit's not as good, then maybe they're willing to take a risk loaning to you, but they're going to make you pay a little bit more in interest because they want to make sure that they can hopefully cover uh, any risk of you possibly not paying back. Now, back in one of our episodes about the coronavirus, we were talking about the guy who was hoarding hand sanitizer at the beginning of the lockdowns. And we talked about in that episode that prices aren't just random numbers that are made up for greed. Instead, prices are signals. They tell us whether something is easy or difficult to make, whether it's rare or whether there's a lot of it, and maybe it tells us the quality of the item. And those qualities help manufacturers and service providers know how much to charge, and it helps us as consumers decide where the best places are to spend money. I think the example I gave in that episode is, you know, say I'm making chairs to sell, and I'm making those chairs out of wood. And I spend a certain amount of money on the wood and a certain amount of time making the chairs. And that tells me how much I can charge you, the customer, to buy my wooden chairs. But then they start building a lot of houses in my area. And they need that same wood to build the houses. The lumber companies are going to raise their prices. Hopefully the wood doesn't run out because everybody seems to be buying wood now. Now the contractors who are building the houses know that they need that wood to build their houses. So they're willing to pay the higher prices because that's a material that they just can't do without. And that may even drive up the price of the houses, but most people have heard the story of the three little pigs and they know that it's just not safe to build a house out of straw or sticks. You've got to have sturdy materials. You've got to have good lumber to build these things out of. But where does that leave me, the chairmaker? Sure. I like to make my chairs out of wood, but I don't need wood to make a decent chair. So I can raise my prices on wooden chairs, or I can focus on building the chairs out of something less expensive, like particle board or plastic or aluminum or something like that. But the important thing to understand is there are lots of ways to make a decent chair, and it's probably in my best interest to find the cheaper option so that the most consumers will want to buy my chairs. So... In that way, the higher prices actually helped that wood find its best use in the economy. It was used for the houses and not for the chairs. And who knows, maybe in time there will be too many houses and lumber price down and I switch back to making wooden chairs because they're cheap again. This is the same reason why the McRib comes and goes at McDonald's. When they see pork prices drop below a certain level, they buy a bunch of the pork and they sell the McRib for a while. Then when prices go back up, McDonald's doesn't want to have to charge $5 or whatever it would cost for a pork sandwich, so they just stop selling the McRib. And something that comes and goes, they can use that as a marketing technique, hopefully draw more people in who like that. But again, the prices are used as a signal to those business owners that help them decide how to best use the goods that are available. And it also keeps the consumers from using up all of it, whatever it is. If if water is cheap, then maybe people will wash their cars and water their lawns and take two showers a day and let the kids play in the sprinklers all day. But if you're experiencing some sort of water shortage, then it actually helps you to raise the price of water to stop people from using so much of it. If water is going to cost you a lot of extra money, maybe you think twice about taking that extra shower or watering the lawn. But if you're paying more for it, you're going to make sure that you only use it for the things that you really need. And That also helps save water for people who really need it too. But if President Bernie Sanders were to decide that cheap water is a human right, 
and ban the water company from raising prices, then there's really nothing to stop some people from taking extra showers or letting the sprinklers run or whatever, and that's going to lead to possible shortages. And you can try to ban some of those things. You know, I know in California, sometimes it's illegal to wash your cars and stuff like that, but some people are always going to sneak around those things because they think, oh, if it's just me doing it, it's not really going to hurt anybody, and they'll do it anyway. They think that they you know, you're either more important than the rules or they just think that one person breaking the rule isn't going to make a difference, so it might as well be them. And that absolutely leads to shortages. And then when you have people who really need the water for drinking or bathing or whatever, if it's all used up because too many people wash their cars, that's a problem. However, if you allow the prices to rise and you allow the consequences of their actions to hit them in their pocketbooks, then people will be best motivated to make good decisions and to use their resources wisely. So price fixing usually comes from good intentions. You want people to be able to have water. You want people to be able to have health care. All of these different things, we want to lock those prices down low so that as many people can get them as possible. But the problem with that is it leads to shortages. It's always going to lead to some kind of shortage because you're going to create more demand than there is supply when the prices are artificially kept low. Now, in the last episode, we talked about the stock market and how the federal government wants to make the stock markets look good. The average person, they really don't understand the economy at large, but it's easy enough to see whether the stock market is going up or down. You know, I said before, is it green or is it red? Is it up or is it down? We know whether those things are good or not. And every president wants to make sure that those NASDAQ and Dow Jones numbers go up while he's in office. Remember, Trump never shut up about this, how great the stock market was under him, on and on and on. Um, it doesn't matter, though, if they're Republican or Democrat. You've got maybe four or eight years to do this, and this could be a big part of your legacy. And so you're going to want to do everything you can to make yourself look good. So whatever it takes, let's keep pumping this stock market up. Let everybody know how great I was for the economy. And people will talk about this for years to come. You know, People still talk about how great the economy was under Bill Clinton. So. Like we said last episode, one of the things that they'll do is they'll pump money into the stock market and that helps the stock prices go up and that makes the average consumer think that the economy is good and that encourages the consumer to go spend more money too, which also helps the stock markets go up. If consumers thought that bad times might be coming, they might start saving their money and stop spending. Of course, that's bad for the stock market. So at almost all costs, you want to make sure that you're always telling everybody that everything is great, things have never been better, there's no need to save money because there are no rainy days and you just need to spend, spend, spend and make the markets go up and make sure the economy looks good for this presidential administration, whichever one it is, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Now, going back to our conversation about banks, we just talked about how banks would work in a free market and how they would need to make sure that they had enough money in savings to make sure that they could afford to give out more money for loans. But we don't have a free market in the banking sector of this company. No, we have the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is it's the bank that all the banks report to. They're the, the bank that all the other banks get their money from, basically. Now, the Federal Reserve or the Fed, uh, it's technically a private company, but its chairman is appointed by the president and it's authorized by the government to actually create new money that can be used by the U.S. government and its citizens. So it's private, but not really. Um, it really only serves to benefit the federal government. And um, it was the purpose of trying to smooth out the economy and try to keep the free market capitalism from going out of control. But 
15 years after the Federal Reserve was created, we had a giant stock market crash and the Great Depression happened, which lasted for like a whole decade. So you tell me how well it's really working. And as we'll explain here, the Federal Reserve actually makes these booms and busts worse than they would be if we just had unbridled capitalism. So again, the Federal Reserve is the bank that all the banks go to when they need money. And again, the Federal Reserve is legally able to create money out of thin air. This means that instead of your banks needing to build up adequate savings before they can loan out money, they can just borrow more money right from the Federal Reserve and they can loan that money out to new customers. This is what they're talking about on the news when they say that the Federal Reserve is raising or lowering rates. What they're talking about is that the Fed is changing the interest rates on how the banks can borrow money from them, which is going to affect how much money the banks will lend out to consumers. So, by keeping the interest rates artificially low, now the banks are encouraged to lend more, which is obviously going to encourage people to borrow more, which encourages everybody to spend more. And if the markets are slumping a little bit, then maybe the Fed just releases more money to be loaned and more people take out loans. And that helps the stock market get back up to where they want it to be. And just like we discussed with the water earlier, if you have more of something and it's cheap, then you're more likely to be a little bit careless with it. And since the banks aren't as worried about all their savings running out, they're not going to be as picky about who they're loaning money out to. They're going to be much more likely to give out loans to someone who isn't maybe qualified to get one. This is why we saw the housing bubble burst back in 2007 and 2008. The government thought it's good for people to own houses. Real estate is a good investment and a great way to build wealth. And we want as many people as possible to own houses. So they started giving out mortgages like crazy to anybody who wanted one. And a lot of these people just weren't financially ready to be owning homes. You got to remember, owning a house can be expensive. The water heater breaks, the roof blows off, the air conditioner goes out, the fence needs replaced. And if you rent, then who cares? That's the landlord's problem, right? You call them and you make them fix it. But when you own the house, those unexpected expenses can really add up and they can absolutely destroy your house if you don't take care of them in a timely manner. I mean, your house can be condemned if you get the wrong kind of issues that need repaired and you don't repair them. So what we found out was that a lot of these people who were given mortgages just because it's good for more people to own more homes, those people couldn't pay for those homes or those mortgages. And so now you've got tons of people falling behind on their payments. And finally, this catches up to the banks and it causes a ripple effect that caused our entire economy to drop. And again, there were good intentions behind this. They, they wanted more people to be able to buy homes. But when you manipulate the economy, whatever your intentions are, whatever your motives are, there are still going to be side effects. And a lot of times we're going to suffer those side effects and consequences. And I completely understand that they had good intentions behind this. They just wanted more people to be able to buy more homes. They wanted to help more people own homes. But when you manipulate the economy, you are going to suffer the side effects and the consequences of what you're doing there. And we see some of this starting to happen again with Kamala Harris's plan to help black people buy homes and Joe Biden's plan to give out more loans to minority-owned businesses. 
And you've heard me say plenty of times that I think that a lot of the issues facing black people in this country are more a result of them being poor than it is a result of any kind of direct racism. And these loan programs are a good example of that. If you're not qualified to get a loan, if you don't make enough money or you don't have good enough credit history, a loan or mortgage is going to come back to bite you when you run into unexpected expenses or hardships. And by pushing minorities into these types of dangerous loans, you are setting them up for more failure. They would be far better off if we would just leave them alone and lift regulations and expensive licensing laws that hold them back from building their businesses and making more money. And stop printing money to cause the inflation that's making their little bit of money that they have worth even less. So, again... A lot of these issues are not racial issues. They are financial issues that get turned into racial issues so that some politician can get some talking points. Now, an interest rate is the price of borrowing or saving money. And just like other prices, it gives a signal to everyone else about what the environment is like for that product. If something is cheap, that tells you that there's probably plenty of it available and it might be okay to waste it or to use a lot of it. If it's expensive, then that means it's harder to come by and you should be more careful with it. That's why we have the phrase, don't cry over spilled milk. You can buy more milk, no problem. It's cheap enough, you can go to the store, piece of cake. But if you spill some 100-year-old limited edition wine, it's okay to cry over that. You know that that cannot be recovered nearly as cheaply or as easily. So, when credit is cheap, this tells investors that there's plenty of it. And when there's plenty of credit, that means it's a good time to take a risk. And, you know, if you miss out, if your risk comes up short, well, don't cry over spilled milk. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my cousins had a swimming pool. And of course, it's got a deep end and a shallow end. And the shallow end had those no diving signs with the picture of the little stick figure hitting his head on the floor of the pool. So we, being the rebellious little munchkins that we were, we would make it a point to stand right over top of that no diving sign, and we would dive into the shallow end. But, of course, we would, you know, kind of change our trajectory so that we weren't going straight down at the floor of the pool, but we were kind of leveled out so that it was safe to dive into the shallow water. And, you know, of course, we felt so cool breaking the rules in that way because we kind of found a way to get around it, right? But what if somebody switched those signs and said that the shallow end was safe to dive into? So instead of those conservative, shallow, flat dives that took us more toward the middle of the pool than it did the bottom of it, what if someone walked up to the shallow end and saw a sign that said that they could dive as deep as they wanted? That person is going to jump in head first, and they're not just going to bump their head on the bottom. They're going to hit it hard. And that could be disastrous or even deadly. And it really wouldn't even be their fault. The signs told them that the water was deep enough. Everything that they had trusted before told them that they had plenty of room to go as deep as they wanted. And that may even be an exciting line to hear. But being excited or feeling good about what you've been told does not help you when you crack your skull on the concrete floor of a swimming pool. So going back to this conversation about banks and lending... When investors and entrepreneurs are looking to the markets and to the interest rates to tell them what the business climate is like, but everything about the markets and interest rates say, come on in, the water's fine, and these investors jump in head first, this can lead to disaster. 
You see, low interest rates cause more entrepreneurs to start long-term projects. It tells them that things are going to be good for a while, so it's it's good to build a giant building. You, know, you can build a skyscraper, and it's going to take several years, but that's okay because credit is cheap, times are good, things are going well. Now, the fact that they're going to start more long-term projects causes a need for more workers, and that means that wages are going to be raised to attract those workers from their current jobs. And this is going to play into that loop even more of increased consumer spending, causing this artificial boom to be even greater. So they're starting these projects. They're pulling more workers over. The workers are getting paid more money than ever. So they're going to spend more money than ever. And this is going to cause that artificial boom to be even greater. And that's going to cause everything to keep going up. NASDAQ is going to keep going up. The Dow Jones is going to keep going up. And everybody thinks that everything is good. Then, when the Federal Reserve finally gets nervous and tightens their rates, because even they're going to be afraid that eventually they're going to spend too much money, this tightening of rates is going to end the boom, and the bust is the result of the correction of things going back down. Then, people are going to blame the crash on the Fed tightening rates, and that just kind of implies that the Fed should have just held out a little longer, and everything would have been fine. And just like every other government entity, they're not actually punished for screwing this up. Instead, everybody agrees that they meant well, and we just need to make a few more tweaks in the process, and we need to just give them a little bit more power and try a little bit harder to get the right people in power the next time. But what exactly is happening during a bust? Um, I want you to try to imagine just a regular line graph with an X and a Y axis, and I want you to imagine that one line on the graph is just kind of gradually going up from left to right. So it starts down, you know, maybe at like zero and just a gentle, gradual slope. And by the time it gets all the way to the right side of the graph, maybe it's like a quarter way up the graph, right? That line is our real economy over time. Um, obviously, there's going to be little ups and downs, but for the most part, we are fairly productive and we're building more wealth as we go. Um, technology is getting better, we're getting more efficient, you know, all of those things are relatively good. But I want you to imagine another line on that graph. And this is a much steeper line going upward from left to right. And this one makes it all the way to the top of the graph when it gets to the other side. This line is what our economy looks like when you look at the artificial inflated stock markets and other markets that have been artificially pumped up. And what you'll notice on that graph, if you're trying to think of both of these lines at the same time, is that the further you move from left to right, the bigger the gap is between the bottom line, our real economy, and the top line, our inflated economy. But sooner or later, as we've talked about plenty of times before, prices will find their way back to where they really should be. Or, as a worst case scenario, you hold the false prices out for so long and by so much that you actually ruin the currency that you use to measure the prices. And that's why the Fed tightens these things in. It's kind of like, buying everything on a credit card, right? It feels good to buy things on a credit card because you don't have to pay it back, but sooner or later, you know that you can't do this forever because they're going to cut off your credit and you're not going to be able to buy anymore. And it's kind of the same with the currency. Even the Fed knows that they can't just keep printing off billions and billions of dollars every day because eventually people are going to realize that the dollar's not worth anything because there's no scarcity in that. So sooner or later, they do have to kind of reel those rates back in a little bit so that they don't just blow up everything. So sooner or later, they tighten the rates a little bit, and sooner or later, that causes this massive bust, or um, as we would be more correct to call it, a correction 
back down to the correct real prices and values of stocks and interest rates. And thinking of our little graph here, the longer we artificially inflate everything, the longer that that boom, that big line goes way, way up, the bigger that gap gets between the artificial economy and the real economy line. And that means that we have a lot farther to fall back down before things get back to a stable level. And think about it. We've just had a global pandemic. We've had a year of lockdowns in one form or another. We had over 180,000 small businesses closed last year, and at least 100,000 of them are closed for good, according to a CNN article that I read that was posted back in September. We've had the highest unemployment numbers since the Great Depression, literally tens of millions of jobs being lost over this thing. And I'm not even interested in talking about whether all this is necessary for COVID or not. The fact is that it happened. The truth is a lot of people did get sick and a lot of people got scared and a lot of people were trying to figure out what they needed to do to keep themselves safe. And this thing would have hurt the economy even without government mandated lockdowns. Plenty of people would have been scared and not gone out to eat anymore, that kind of thing. So hundreds of thousands of businesses have closed. Tens of millions of people are unemployed. Even more people are having their hours cut. And meanwhile, the stock market is setting record numbers almost every day. I mean, seriously, does that make sense to you? Because it shouldn't. And you've heard people like me saying that this thing was overinflated before we spent trillions of dollars in stimulus money. And all of that was fake before Donald Trump goes on Twitter bragging about how the NASDAQ is higher than it's ever been. And we took a massive bubble, that high line on our graph, and we shot the thing up so high that it went off the page. And sooner or later, that bubble is going to burst. And we're going to drop all the way down from that fake line, and we're going to land much closer to where that real line should be. And everybody you know, they'll be listening to everybody on the news, and they'll all be talking about this giant crash, and they'll be speculating as to what caused it. And of course, this time, the Democrats are going to blame it on Donald Trump and his tax cuts, and the Republicans are going to say everything was fine until Joe Biden got in office. And they'll both look for some regulation or corporation to blame it on. But they will all agree that there was no way of seeing this coming. And that's why we're talking about this right now. So that we can confidently say that we did see this coming. And we've been predicting it for a long time. And that it's basically the same thing every time. And sure, the inflation may occur in one different industry or another. Uh, we had the tech bubble bust back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then it was the housing bust in 2007, 2008 that caused the last one. But the principles remain the same. Prices will eventually return to their proper levels. And when you try to manipulate prices, you are going to cause unwanted side effects. And if you cause an artificial boom because you own stocks and it makes you money, or because you're a bank and you like giving out loans, or because it makes your president look good, then sooner or later, a correction is going to occur. And it doesn't matter how good your intentions were. The housing bubble happened because the Bush administration thought it was good for as many people as possible to own houses. And they allocated new money to make that possible. Obama's administration wanted the country to recover from the housing bubble correction. So they pumped money back into the stock market to get it back on its feet. The Trump administration wanted a booming stock market because their president was known as a successful businessman. And then they gave out COVID relief packages to help people and businesses that were blindsided by this pandemic. 
And now you've got a Biden administration who's continuing the COVID relief packages. And they're talking about ways to give extra housing loans to minorities and extra business loans to minority-owned businesses. And listen, if we're speaking from the heart here, if we're being honest, those are all really good causes on the surface. We don't want to see people lose their jobs and suffer. And we do want to see as many people as possible owning houses and starting their own businesses. But the problem is, like the law of gravity or the laws of nutrition, you can't change science. You can't change the laws of economics. You can't do away with scarcity. If you give somebody a loan that they can't afford, you might as well be sending them skydiving without a parachute. It may be a fun ride on the way down, but sooner or later the effects of gravity are going to come into play. And if you lie to them about the prices of the market, you're telling them to dive headfirst into the shallow end of that swimming pool. But ultimately, this boom-bust cycle that so many people will claim it's just a feature of capitalism, the boom-bust cycle is not natural. It is not a feature of capitalism. It is not a feature of free markets. It's the result of manipulating prices and interest rates for political gain. And that is why we have these massive booms that usually last for 10 years or so, followed by these massive corrections that cause so many people to lose money and lose their jobs. That's why it happens. And by pouring all that extra money into these businesses that don't need it, causes them to hire more people that they really don't need or that they really can't afford. And then when things go bad, all of those people lose their jobs when they would have been far better in a real economy, really knowing where the jobs were, really knowing what the wages should be, really knowing what they should be spending instead of being encouraged to spend, spend, spend all the time and being told that everything is great. Now, I do want to be clear that in free market capitalism, there are still going to be some ups and downs. Um, there are two of these I can think of right off the top of my head. The first one is kind of silly, but I think you're going to get my point. So some of you will remember back in, I think it was 2007, and the uh, Michael Bay Transformers movie came out. And that movie introduced the world to Megan Fox. And Megan Fox was just... So hot. She was the hottest new star in Hollywood. And she was almost like a she was almost like a younger version of Angelina Jolie. And she was everywhere. The world could not get enough of Megan Fox. She was on the cover of Rolling Stone. She's on all the late night shows. You could buy posters of her everywhere. Everybody wanted more Megan Fox. And after a year or two, the second Transformer movie came out, and they took full advantage of the fact that they had Megan Fox. And she was all over the thing and just in your face the whole movie. And about the same time, she also starred in this movie, and it was called Jennifer's Body, which was based solely on the sex appeal of the world's hottest young star, Megan Fox. But around that time, you know, two or three years into this, a kind of funny thing happened. Um, the world started to realize that Megan Fox is actually not all that hot, and she actually just kind of looks greasy and gross, and... Um, her personality wasn't all that great either. She didn't seem like she was very likable or that she would be any fun to be around. And just as quickly as Megan Fox rose to the top, the world stopped valuing her so much. And her value as an actress saw a correction and she dropped way, way back down to the level of like a B-list celebrity um, where she probably more appropriately belonged. 
And I'm sure she's been in some movies, and I know she had a guest role on The New Girl for several episodes, but this actress and her skills were way overvalued for a short time, but it didn't take long for her to find her proper place in the industry at the proper role and the proper price level. Uh, one other example I can think of, I think this came from a marketing thing that I did through Tom Woods, if I remember right. The lady was talking about how she found out people were making bracelets and necklaces out of Scrabble tiles. And, you know, each tile has a letter on it and you could get the letters to spell somebody's name or whatever. And it was this really cool, easy way to make jewelry and sell it for money. And then somebody else could get, you know, an, a necklace with their name written on it in Scrabble tiles or get it as a gift for somebody else or whatever. The problem with this was it was a little too easy. And before she knew it, all kinds of people were selling Scrabble necklaces and bracelets. And that kind of jewelry, it's cool when it's original, but it loses a lot of its appeal when it becomes really popular and everybody you know already has one. So almost as quickly as she was able to buy a bunch of Scrabble games and start making some jewelry and get her pictures up on her website, the market became flooded and this product became basically worthless because everybody in the world was trying to get in on making Scrabble tile bracelets and necklaces because it was so cheap and so easy to do. And had this been the only thing that this woman was selling, she would have been out of a job almost immediately because you just couldn't make money in it. But um, this is a great example of a little miniature boom and bust in the Scrabble jewelry market. But the difference is this cycle came and went over the span of just like a month or two. So there wasn't any outside interference. And very quickly, entrepreneurs were able to buy supplies and make the jewelry and customers were able to buy the jewelry. And then customers were able to get tired of the jewelry and stop buying it. And entrepreneurs were able to see that nobody's buying this. And then they out of the Scrabble jewelry industry. And that's literally the end of the story. That's how it ends. And you've probably got a handful of people who lost a little bit of money because they bought too many Scrabble tiles. And you've got a handful of people who bought Scrabble jewelry that's not worth anything anymore. And it's probably not even considered all that cool anymore. And again, that's it. But what if the Federal Reserve had gotten involved in this market? What if this current presidential administration decides that Scrabble bracelets are a human right? And everyone should have them. So they start giving out subsidies to Scrabble jewelry companies so they can hire more employees and they can make it easier for customers to take out loans so that they can afford to buy Scrabble necklaces and bracelets. And if you're offering people cheap loans to buy the jewelry, well, then they would be silly for not taking the money. It's, you know, it's cheap. It may even be a zero interest rate, maybe almost free to borrow the money. And more money for buying Scrabble jewelry means the price of Scrabble jewelry is just going to keep going higher and higher. And then when people do finally get sick of buying the jewelry, this causes problems for the jewelry makers who have hired hundreds or thousands of employees to keep their businesses going. And now we're looking at an employment crisis and Congress decides that these Etsy stores are too big to fail and we need to give them billion dollar bailouts so that all these employees don't lose their jobs and have to go on unemployment. And now you've also got a loan crisis because you gave loans out to people who couldn't afford them because everybody deserves to be able to afford Scrabble jewelry. And all of these massive economic problems could have stemmed from the government getting involved in this one little industry. But it didn't. In fact, the losses were pretty minimal. 
a couple extra board games bought. Maybe you're out 20 bucks or 50 bucks instead of a, a, a billion dollar catastrophe that requires bailouts for millions of employees. So, yeah, free market capitalism will still have some ups and downs. Some businesses are going to fail because a trend passes or because of famines or because of pandemics or maybe just because of bad decision making. But those failures are going to occur much more quickly and the losses will be far less than they would be if they had some government artificially propping them up for an extra decade. So, there you have it. That's it. That's called the Austrian business cycle theory and that explains why we believe that we have this massive boom-bust cycle in government-directed economies. Now, I also said in an earlier episode, a couple episodes ago, that I would try to give you my little kind of conspiracy theory of how I believe the Democrats could take advantage of the boom-bust cycle in the current administration. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that this will happen. I don't want to say that I'm predicting it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happens. So, just want to be clear, it's not necessarily a prediction, but this is what I would do if I were them. So, here we are, we've had a year of pandemic lockdowns, and we have a completely bogus economy, and the Democrats have the House, the Senate, and the White House. And if I were a Democrat in charge of this whole thing, and I wanted to make my party look good while pushing the country further in a socialist and progressive direction, then I would secretly tell the Fed to tighten rates now and let the whole thing come crashing down. Right now. Don't wait another minute. By this way, we're still close enough to Trump's final days in office that we could still blame the whole thing on him. Most Democrats are going to believe that no matter what, and a lot of your more independent voters will believe that Joe Biden hasn't been in office long enough to have an effect on the economy. And your hard right people are going to blame Biden and the Democrats no matter what, so there's not really any point in spending any energy worrying about what they think. So, they tighten the rates, and now you've got a crash, and you've got a scapegoat to blame for it. Stock market tanks, everybody's 401ks are losing tons of money, people are losing their retirement, the loan market is terrible, and people are defaulting. The whole country is hurting. And those are the perfect circumstances to start bringing in some serious changes to bring us a more progressive economy. Even the rich people are going to be feeling the pain when they see their investments losing value and their retirements starting to dry up. And this is going to cause more business closures. It's going to result in less jobs and less hours to work. And that also means that wages are probably going to go down. And when everybody is suffering, they're more likely to get desperate. They're more likely to take what they can get for themselves. So when the Democrats want to raise taxes on the rich to give more stimulus payments to the middle class and poor, even conservatives who are typically against this will be seriously starting to consider how much this might actually help them. And they'll be much more open to universal health care when they may not have jobs that can provide health insurance for them. And they'll be just as concerned about the economy as their Democrat friends and neighbors. You know, with the coronavirus, it turned out that the virus was as bad as you wanted it to be. If you were terrified of it, then you could look at the death tolls and the infection rates and you could support the lockdowns and wear a mask everywhere, everywhere you went if you wanted to. It was very, very easy to live in fear of COVID-19. But at the same time, it was also pretty easy to downplay it. You could look at how a lot of the numbers were inflated. You could meet with your friends and visit certain businesses without a mask. And you probably were just fine. You probably didn't catch it. You probably didn't die from it. 
This allowed for all kinds of political division while one side treated this like it was the Black Plague and the other side rolled their eyes and pretty much lived their lives almost completely normally. But when the job market is down and your 401k is losing its value, we're all feeling it. And that means you're probably going to be in contact with plenty of people who also have it even worse than you. And once again, that status quo bias kicks in. And you look around and realize that it's not just you who's hurting. Everybody is hurting. So then, when the Democrats want to start raising taxes on the middle class to pay for more social safety nets, who are you to complain? I mean, sure, you've got it rough and maybe your wages got cut, but you've got a family member who lost his job and can't feed his three kids. Or another friend who just had his house foreclosed because he couldn't afford the payments. So... Who are you to complain about a few extra taxes when so many people around you have it worse than you? And these programs might actually help some of those people that are close to you. You see, the status quo bias is essential for these socialist-type programs to work. They don't really make the average person more rich. They just make it a little bit more tolerable for them to be poor. We saw the same things during the war efforts. We all have to ration our goods and our women have to work in the factories and we have to be careful not to use too much gasoline because we are doing our part to fight this world war. And even more than what we saw during the coronavirus, we really will be encouraged to adopt the attitude that we're all in this together. And that's why you need to do your part as a good citizen to give up more of your rights and more of your money so that you can help your fellow man in this time of suffering. And hey, When things get better, then we can go back to our standard Republican versus Democrat arguments about minimum wage and tax breaks and all that. But right now, we're in an emergency, and we have to act now. We don't have time to fight about it. People are going to die. People are going to starve. People are losing things, and we need to save them. And so it's your duty as a good citizen to shut up and roll with it. We have to save society, and we just need you to do your part. And causing this crash to happen sooner rather than later makes sure that we can still push plenty of the blame onto the Trump administration while allowing us to get used to suffering hardship under President Biden. I really, really think that they should do this in the first year of the Biden presidency so that the correction has time to hopefully bottom out and hopefully we can start seeing a little bit of upward progress back up, moving the economy back up a little bit to tell the voters that the worst is over and we have to stay the course and vote Democrat again in 2024 to keep this recovery moving. Because if, if you wait too long, if a crash happens too close to election time, this can cause the populace to get angry and demand a different regime to fix it. So we have to go through this together under Biden and give him the time to lead us through it. We also know that any new programs that are started, whether it be you know universal basic income checks or universal health care or free college or whatever, these things are almost never canceled once they're started. Any of these leftist moves made during the Biden presidency will likely become cemented as an essential part of being an American citizen, just like Social Security or public schooling. And if they are fortunate enough to get a recovery started in time for the 2024 election, they can get reelected and have four more years to continue reinflating the economic bubble and bragging about how great their economy has been and how it's just shooting up through the roof. And because the average people only know how to read the stock market, they'll believe it. And we will go through this entire boom-bust cycle all over again. Now, 
I think I gave you a pretty good case for why this could happen and why I think it would be a good idea to do things this way. But in the interest of fairness, I also want to talk about why this might not happen or why they might not do it on purpose. As I said in the episode where we talked about the Great Reset, there are always lots of different people with different plans who are vying for power. And I think that my plan would help the Democrats gain more power in the long run. But not everybody is concerned with the long run. Some people are worried about doing the best they can to make use of their power now. Somebody like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is really popular because she's young and she's healthy and she's really good at social media. But she also runs the risk of losing popularity. She's in her 30s now and she's not going to be young and hip forever. She may want to take advantage of all the lobbyists and all the other perks of being a popular congresswoman while she still can. And there are also a lot of people who make a lot of money during these boom periods of the economy. Plenty of people know that something is not right in the stock market right now because it's so high even though all of this coronavirus stuff has happened. But they continue investing in it anyway because they don't want to miss out on the big gains that are still happening. And maybe those people in the administration would rather try to ride this boom a little bit further and make another million dollars instead of sacrificing it all for some political power grab. There's also a chance that the economy crashes worse than expected or the recovery takes longer than expected and it makes Democrats look incompetent in handling that. So it could certainly backfire on them and that may or may not be a risk that they are willing to take. I am fairly confident that there are going to be people on both sides of that even in the White House right now. but. If it were up to me, if I were in charge, if I wanted long-term power for my party, the Democrats, that's how I would do it. That's my master plan. And Nancy Pelosi, you're free to use that as you wish. I just hope that I receive some sort of proper payment for it. I appreciate that as a struggling podcaster. So there we have it. That is the boom-bust cycle. That is my mad scientist theory of how I think that the Democrats could take advantage of a giant crash in the economy during this administration. And that's it. And one of the other things I also realized I forgot to tell you in the beginning of this is I was able to buy some new sound equipment. This episode should be sounding a little bit better than the other ones before. And that was also because of your donations. So I just want to thank you so much. If you've chipped in toward that, I just want to say that these things are being used for the podcast and they are making the podcast better. And hopefully you enjoy the sound of this um, as things continue to just sound a little bit better, sound a little bit more professional. And just want to thank you so much. If you want to donate any money, uh, I'm on PayPal, which uses my email address, Garrett again at pm.me. Or you can also support me on Bitbacker if you want to donate some crypto. And uh, my username on there is Garrett again. And if you have any questions, you want to write to me, my email address, as I said, is Garrett again at pm.me. You can find me on twitter.com slash Garrett again, facebook.com slash Garrett again. I'm on MeWe, first name Garrett, last name again. And as always, Garrett just has one R in it. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I promise not to wait another month and a half before I come back to you. You got some other things I want to talk about and hopefully things in my life get settled down a little bit more so that I can be here on a more consistent basis. I know I keep promising that, but I honestly uh, am doing my best to get better at this. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you for following. Please share this with your friends and continue making it the best podcast out there. Thank you so much. And until next time, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.